God, we praise you this day. We thank you that we are under your veil of protection. And we ask, Holy Father, that you would grant us grace now as we seek to understand your word. Please give me the grace I need as your appointed minister to preach your word faithfully, thereby bringing glory to your name and benefits to your blood-purchased people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I think most of us, if we're sane and rational, would agree that it's wise to obey a lawful authority when that lawful authority has actual lawful power over you. You can fight City Hall, but generally speaking, you're going to lose. And we might be, at any one given time, upset with this civil ruler or that civil ruler. Certainly Christians in other lands live under despots who don't have a lawful authority and who are in blatant violation of not only God's law, but logic and common sense. I think we would all agree that it's dangerous to not bow before God. Very dangerous. It's very dangerous, even in the world of human affairs, to interpret laws improperly. What do they say? Ignorance of the law is no excuse, correct? It doesn't matter if you knew that it was illegal. If it's illegal and you get caught doing it, you're in trouble. If it's wrong to tamper and misinterpret man's laws, which are fallible, how much more than dangerous is it to buck the authority of God's law and misinterpret it and to twist it for our own selfish gain by legalism, moralism, and traditionalism? Those things are part and parcel of rebellion against God. We take our marching orders from God and God alone. We have to continually examine our lives our families' lives, our church's practices, our denominational practices, in light of God's word. It really is just that simple. If we don't, we will go astray. The history of the covenant people of God is rather like a soap opera. It's always the same. God says A, and the people say Minus A, or plus A, or B, or C, or D, and they run into a wall. And then they have to crawl back to God. Think about it when we sin as individuals. When we sin as individuals, at any moment in time, we're telling God, no. No. I don't like that law at this moment in time. I don't think it's a just law. No. I'm going to put you on hold. Now, we obviously, hopefully, don't do that intentionally. That's called sinning with a high hand. That's doubly dangerous. But we say no to God. We say, we know better. I know better than you at this moment, God. I have to steal. I have to cheat on my taxes. I have to do this or that or not do this or that. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is turning the world on its head. If you really read this sermon slowly and just let it speak to you, you will realize that 
It's crazy teaching now. And we have 2,000 years of Christian heritage behind us in the West. Let's say 200, 2,000. At the time he said it, the people must have been sitting there with their mouths wide open. And that's what should happen to us as well. Because what Christ is doing is he is literally showing us the way of covenantal sanctification. The way to live in God's kingdom. Not the way to get into the kingdom. The only way you get into the kingdom is by begging God for mercy and grace. But how to live in the kingdom, that's what he's doing. And I would hope that you would think that that's important. I don't think I've ever brought a magazine into the pulpit, but I did today. I can thank my mother-in-law for this. She bought it. Bought it. Not to me. To my wife on Easter. Cooking Light. It seems like a pretty innocent magazine. I've never perused it. I have to admit I didn't look into it. I've never bought one, but it looks like it's fairly wholesome. Recipes. 281 good recipes and tips. Pretty innocuous. Certainly nothing slanderous. Maybe you can't see the back. It's a car ad for an Infinity. Perfectly nice car. It looks shiny. If you have really good eyesight, you can read this. I'll read it for you. The brave shall inherit the earth. The brave shall inherit the earth. Hmm. We have ourselves a little problem here. This company, I'm not singling them out. It was just lying on the coffee table there for me to see on Sunday. This company, whoever dreamed up this ad, took the words of Jesus and intentionally twisted them. They didn't make a mistake. We all make mistakes. There's still sins, but that's intentional. And that's scary. Whoever did that and whoever approved of that really need to get on their knees and say, ooh, bad mistake. I took one of your sayings, one of your Decreed of sayings, the meek shall inherit the earth. Not the brave. Not the brave. The meek. That's dangerous. You know who did it back then? The Pharisees. That's what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's picking a three-year fight with the Pharisees immediately. Contemporary Judaism is a completely man-made religion. They haven't had a sacrifice in 2,000 years. There's no temple. Everything is made up. They have had to have replaced everything with man-made laws. Because there's no temple. Because there's no need of a temple. Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. And what modern-day Judaism is, is Pharisaism. Once the temple was gone, you had no need for priests. The Sadducees were gone. Who filled the power vacuum? The Pharisees. The rabbis. The rabbis. And their oral tradition. And when we read the Gospels, we get this sense that the Pharisees are really religious. That they're very strict. That these are, these are upright guys. These are holy ones. They're very concerned with God's law. But if we scratch just a little bit deep below the surface, we realize... They're very quite the opposite. 
They're quite the opposite. They twisted God's law for their own selfish purpose. You go home and read Matthew 23. It takes place after the triumphal entry before his arrest. It's scathing. It's a tongue lashing the likes of which none of us have ever received. Mostly given to the scribes and the Pharisees. Because Jesus could see into their heart. You see, the Pharisees were just concerned with moralism. They were just concerned about traditionalism. Good boyism. Good girlism. Jesus here is scratching below the surface and pointing out to us authoritatively, God doesn't care about the formalities you give him. He wants your heart. He created you. He owns you. He has redeemed you. He tells you what to do and how dare you reduce the covenantal faith to a list of be a good boy, be a good girl. Parents, grandparents, that is some of the most dangerous language you can use to your children. That's not nice. It may not be nice, but if it's not nice and it's really not nice, then guess what? It's a sin. We need to use the proper terms. We need to tell the child, that's a sin. By the way, it's a particular sin. It's this commandment. Not nice. What's God ever say? Nice. Be nice. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. No. Be a covenantly faithful girl. Be a covenantly faithful boy. It's an entirely different take on things. An entirely different view of things. And Christ is really going to blow the mind off of every human being that's ever lived when we read this little passage from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. That, that sounds like he's quoting Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, right? The fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. Not. When Jesus is quoting scripture, particularly when he's trying to correct the Pharisees, he says something like this. Have you not read? Isn't it written? He always goes back to the written Torah, the written word. Here, he's saying you have heard that it was said. What he's doing in this passage and in the next few weeks, it's a series of antithesis. He's saying, you have heard that it was said. We have to remember that there were Pharisees in the crowd. And when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, and it it gets hotter and hotter, each antithesis gets deeper and deeper to the Pharisees. He's picking a fight with them. He's telling them, your traditions don't mean anything to me. They don't mean anything to God. I'm the final word. Look how he's saying it. You have heard that it was said, and then in verse 22, but I say to you, oh, that's dangerous. If he's not who he said he is, he's on dangerous, dangerous earth. But I say to you, pretend you're a Pharisee, and it's not hard for any of us to do that. It's not hard. And you're in the crowd. And all your life, you've been telling people how to obey the law of God. 
But you haven't been going by the letter of the law. You've been going by the oral tradition of the rabbis that they made up in Babylon when they were in exile. And now you hear this chap who's from Galilee and the Gentiles, son of a carpenter, don't know much about his mother. He's correcting us. You've heard that it was said. Well, who did the saying? They did the saying. Now he's saying, but I say to you. He's saying, I'm more important than them. These are bold words. These are dangerous words. This is the start of the Pharisees saying, this guy is going to be a problem. This isn't a rank and file heretic. This guy is calling us out. And he did that earlier. Verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know how crazy of a statement that is? The Pharisees were viewed as the absolute holy men of the covenantal people. These are the elders of the people. These were the pastors of the people. Guys who studied for a living and taught in the synagogues. And he's telling the people, unless you do better than them, you don't get in. <laughs> if, you were your, if you were your average, everyday, covenantal Israelite, your heart would have sunk in verse 20. I've got to be better than those guys? I, I can't do that. It gets worse. He's going to point out in these antitheses that the Pharisees didn't go far enough. You think that they're obeying God? They're hypocrites. I'm going to show you what God really requires. By the end of this sermon, nobody was jumping around. Everybody was terrified. How do we know that? Well, we have a hint at the end of the sermon. And so it was, and this is in chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. And so it was when Jesus had ended these things that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let me ask you something, brother, sister. Do you think that Christ has authority over you? I mean, does he? Does he or not? It's a black and white decision. Does Christ have authority over your life or not? You need to make a decision now. If you've never made that decision, now you do it. Christ is the lawgiver. He is the one who will judge us. It's to him who we must give account. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If you have not submitted to his authority, I beg you, do so. And if you've already done it, if you made a profession of faith a zillion years ago, then fall on your knees on the inside of your heart and thank God for his grace and mercy. Because God's standards far outweigh anything we could ever dream of doing. You can forget about moralism and traditionalism and formalism and be a good boyism, be a good girlism, because Christ is going to tell us that's not enough. That's not even going to get you close to the pearly gates. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And then he uses termaraka, which is an archaic playground type of slam. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I think if I did, everybody here would raise their hand and say, yes, I've called someone a fool at one time in my life. Or something similar. Jerk. That's a, that's a common one. Idiot. You know, 
I see some of you smiling. You know the words I'm talking about. Not real bad words. Just, hey, you're a fool. Are you an idiot? What's wrong with you? Are you that stupid? Are you that dumb? Something like that. Jesus says if you do that, you're in danger of hellfire. If you do that without cause. Hellfire. That's how deep God's law is. That's how dangerous he is. We have suburbanized God and made him safe. There's this line in C.S. Lewis works about Aslan, the lion who's a representative of Christ. And I can't remember exactly, but someone asks, is, is Aslan safe? And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he's good. God is not safe. You see, the Pharisees had interpreted this sixth commandment to say this, unless you actually stick the knife in the guy's heart, you're okay. That's why they could give David a pass. He didn't actually do the deed. He just hired the guy to do it. They didn't realize. The Pharisees, who seem like they're making laws stricter, are making things more easy. Unless you actually do the deed, you're clean. You're scot-free. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. All you have to do is call a fellow a fool, and you're in danger of hellfire. I want you to put yourself in the position of the Pharisees at this point or your average Israelite and realize what he just said. And maybe you've read these words a zillion times, but think about it. Just, a, just an insult to someone without cause puts you in danger of hellfire. That's how strict God is. I can't water that down. I'll be brutally honest with you. I'm just too afraid of God to water it down. I'd be out of my mind if I watered this down. Every now and again, my wife accuses me of being out of my mind, but generally speaking, I am sane. I'm certainly not going to twist God's words around. This is serious. This is very serious. And if God thinks that of something seemingly innocent as a fool, then you children... Think about what you say to your brothers and sisters, and your classmates, parents. What do we say in front of our children? You realize how serious God is, how dangerous He is. There's hope at the end of the tunnel. We'll get there. He continues. In verses 23 through 26, he's basically telling them, "You've got to get along." With your brother. He's talking to the covenantal people here. If you bring your gifts to the altar, this is formal worship now. If there were Sadducees in the audience, their ears would have perked up because mm, we got the altar, we do the sacrifices. If you bring your gift to the altar, and the Sadducees were the ones who would finally bring the gift to the altar, because only they could do the sacrifices. And then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then he talks about this seemingly strange verses, 25 and 26, about civil courts. Jesus is not advocating debtors' prisons here. 
I mean, in my mind, debtor's prisons are one of the craziest inventions that mankind has ever come up with. You owe me so much money that you can't pay me, so I'm going to throw you in prison. How on earth are you going to pay me then? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever from a financial point of view. Jesus is just pointing out a fact that if you're in the wrong and you're thrown into prison, you're not getting out of there until you pay the last penny. That means your wife and kids are going to have to quit. You know, kids are going to have to quit school, like Charles Dickens had to do. You're going to have to quit school and work to get daddy out of jail. He's not advocating that debtors' prisons are smart. He's just saying that this is a fact. You know what, though? He's talking about hell here. I mentioned it earlier. You owe a debt to God. In a very real reality, hell is God's debtor's prison. You owe God a debt, a moral debt. And if you're put into that debtor's prison, you won't get out of there until you pay the last penny. Brother, sister, you don't have enough pennies in the bank. You don't. If you were the spiritual Federal Reserve and you could just print money at fiat will, you would ne- the printing press would never stop running. If you had a never-ending supply of ink and paper, the printing press would never stop running for the debt that each of us owes to God. Each of us. Man, woman, and child. Hell is God's debtor's prison. You need somebody to pay the debt. If you're in debtor's prison, you can't earn a living. You can only pound so many license plates and somebody has to work for you on the outside and pay your fine. That's what this table represents. Jesus paying your debt. Jesus descending to hell to pay your debt. He has authority to declare to us what is right and wrong. We have no authority to water down or add to his words. Have you gone to him? Are you placing your eternal destiny in the hands of the God-man who is represented in the elements of this table? If not, you have one other option. You're going to get there on your own. Bear in mind, he's just getting warmed up. There's still a couple more pages. He's just getting warmed up here. If you call your brother a fool without cause, you're in danger of hellfire. It's going to get worse. Jesus is going to lay such intense scrutiny to the law of God. What Jesus is doing is he's really opening up the law of God and saying, this is what it's supposed to look like. You there yet? Are you there? It doesn't matter if you hit him with the club or stuck him with the knife. You just insulted him without cause. You're guilty of that law. You're done. The debt can't be paid. I've got to do it. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus is not concerned with how good we look in front of our fellow man. What does he call the Pharisees in another place? Whitewashed tombs. 
look pretty on the outside. They're filled with rot. Verbal murder in God's eyes falls into the same category of crime as physical murder. And how many homes have been wrecked by verbal murder? How many workplaces are awful to go to just because of verbal murder? How many wives have been wounded by their husbands' verbal murder? Yeah, I'm picking on the guys a little bit here. How many children have been wounded because of their parents' verbal murder to one another? Do you realize that there's adults walking out there some of you who are literally walking wounded. Their parents said things to them that were sinful. And the wounds stuck. So for 30 or 40 years, you try and live up to that parent's reach but the parents gone you can't make up with them anymore these are the people you live among when you see people acting a certain way realize they're doing it for a reason they're doing it for a reason now this should terrify you when you realize how serious God is And if you're like me, when you really look at it, you say, okay, where do I go now? Because I'm in a world of trouble. I've blown this one badly. You've got to run to the cross. Think about Jesus here just for a moment. Think of his humanity. Fully God, but what a man he was. Jesus is saying that this is how you get in. This is how you live in the covenant. And Jesus did this. Do you realize that Jesus never once said the wrong thing? Ever! Oh, we give some tongue lashings, but they were always with right cause. Think of that. He was truly a man. The moral perfection that he cultivated to never utter a single sinful word in 33 years. Can you imagine the self-control that it took to do that? You can't. I can't. That's why we need him to pay off our debt. This God-man never broke any of God's laws, and he understood and unfolded God's laws at their deepest level. He didn't just go through the motions. He got to the heart of the matter. That's the God who died for you. The man who died for you, because God can't die. When you read God's law and it crushes you, you have to run to the God-man who created the law, unfolded it for us, and kept it for us. That's what this table represents. Worship him with every ounce of your being. Let's pray. Lord, we do tremble when we think of your demands. 
And we thank you so much that your son fulfilled the law's demands and that his blood covers our debts to you. We thank you in his name. Amen.